Well, good morning, church. I said good morning, church. Thank you. You just fell asleep on me. It's wonderful to be together and worship the Lord. It's, it's great to be able to come before the communion table and be reminded of the Lord's sacrifice on our behalf, the benefits of the gospel, um, practical as they are, that our sins are removed from us. Um, it, it's, it was fun to hear just the, the kind of the recap of the book of Hebrews in preparing our hearts for communion. And it is such a, a powerful book. I was speaking with a couple as they were leaving first service and, and they kind of like stopped and quietly said, we're going to miss the book of Hebrews because they know we're winding down. We're coming to the end of uh, the book. And I said, yeah, it's like saying goodbye to an old friend. Although we don't have to say goodbye. You can keep reading it and I would encourage you to do so. But it's so good for our hearts to slowly work through books of the Bible and to ruminate on each passage as they come to us. It does our soul good. It feeds us and nourishes us. And here we come to the first verse of chapter 13, the last chapter. And, and I just feel like I need to remind you that in the original way in, this, in which this letter was written, the, the chapter breaks and the verses, the, the actual numbers, were not there. And so the, the original recipients would have just read this from beginning to end as a letter uh, from whoever sent it to, to this church that's receiving it. And they would have probably read it more than once. It's not like they would have read it once and sent it on its way. They would have week after week after week ruminated over it and thought about it. But it's, it's important to note, especially this morning, that the chapter breaks are somewhat artificial. They're somewhat arbitrary. They were added in hundreds of years later, and I think they're helpful. It's good for us to be able to find our way through books and be able to quote specific verses and be able to locate those verses in the Bible. But this morning especially, we'll see that sometimes these, these artificial breaks mess us up. What I mean is, if you just read through the letter and you get to the beginning of chapter 13, you'll find this kind of abrupt change. It sounds abrupt, even if you were reading it out loud. It sounds like these are uh, thoughts that are tacked on at the end. And some uh, liberal scholars especially, kind of exposed through their leaky thoughts, their unbelief, when they write things like that this was added on years later by a different author, that this isn't part of the original letter of the book of Hebrews, that this is actually just tacked on uh, much later. And um, I, I thoroughly reject that. I don't think there's any reason why we need to say that this was added on later. Uh, I think there's a good explanation of why the author comes to the end of his argument, I think, at the end of chapter 12, and then gets very practical and kind of this, they call it staccato, this quick fashion, uh, reading out commands, writing out commands before he concludes his letter. Probably most of you don't write letters anymore. Uh, we, we have emails, we have text messages, everything's kind of been shortened down. We're always in a hurry. So, you know, now we just send emojis. We don't even use words. We're like going back to caveman, like, oh, oh, eh. You know, just making noises and smiley faces. But we used to write letters. 
And at the end of those letters, you would, you would often see, sometimes you'd get to the end of the page and you realize you're running out of, you've already turned it over, you've written on the back, and you're running out of paper, and you just kind of tack on, maybe right at the end there, a PS, postscript. And you add in, you know, kind of some quick things that you wanted to cover, but you maybe ran out of room or ran out of time as you're writing the letter. That's the thought I get when I come to chapter 13. The author is not coming back years later. He's not, uh, you know, this isn't a tack on from someone else's thoughts to the letter of Hebrews. I think this is the original author, and he's just tacking on at the end of his argument, the end of his letter, some quick fashion, ethical, important things that need to be talked about that he didn't really have time to develop in the course of his letter. But as we'll see, these things flow directly out of the central argument of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. His sacrifice is better. And he brings us to God all the way. He perfects us for all time. He makes us as worshipers holy in the presence of God. So we can actually be in the presence of God and enjoy that sweet fellowship. And as we come to the end of the book of Hebrews, we're going to see some very practical things that are outworkings of the gospel's impact in our life. These aren't unconnected. And so what I want to do is I want to read for us the first six verses of chapter 13, knowing that we're going to have to cover the rest of it later. There's too much here to cover. In fact, I I went over time, so you can be prepared for that. Um, Hopefully you have a snack in your purse or something, but... Um, But I want to start at the end of chapter 12. I want to start in verse 28. So follow along with me as I read God's word for us. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as those in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Thus, the word of God reads, and uh, let me pray and ask the Lord for help in explaining it. Father, we are grateful that we have a God who is in the heavens that even now you rule supreme over all that you have made, over every thought and every angel and every demon and every person, over the stars and the oceans and the mountains, you are God. You are described as a consuming fire. You dwell in unapproachable light. You are holy and awesome. And it's our desire, Lord, as your redeemed people made holy in the blood of Jesus, that we would worship you as you deserve. Please, God, help us as we seek to understand these verses and seek to apply them to our life. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The verse begins, let brotherly love continue. But it comes on the heels of what the author has just said. Over the last 12 chapters, as he's building his argument and making the case that Jesus is the supreme being, that he is the supreme sacrifice, that he's the supreme priest, that he's better in every regard to any other religious system, especially the Mosaic system, that his covenant is an eternal covenant, that his promises go on forever. After making this case and after challenging this audience repeatedly to continue in what they've believed, he brings them to this concluding thought. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. You see, this idea, this concept of worship is so central to the message of the Bible that sometimes it's overlooked. We can miss it because it's so uh, just rudimentary in, in every page of Scripture that the God of heaven who made us and who rules supreme over us deserves all worship that he made us for that very purpose, that we would dwell in his presence, that we would live with him and be his people and give him worship. It's the appropriate response to a holy God from people that are made in his image. There's no other appropriate response, actually. The alternative to God glorifying and honoring worship is self-promotion. Humans deny God when they live out their own self-interests. And we'll see in this passage that that juxtaposition between the worship of the true God, the, the acceptable worship that is acceptable to him, not us, versus the selfish living that we often fall into as a result of our sinful nature. So the author begins in these short, quick Commands as he's moving to, toward the end of his letter. He says, let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love. He's writing to a group of Christians, at least professing Christians. He's confident in their case that they are Christians, even if some of them may be, may be starting to abandon the faith. He, but he's writing to them to get their attention, to get them back on course and to set their eyes back towards the heavens. But he says here, as he said already back in chapter 6, for, he says in chapter 6, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. He reminds them in the middle of his argument in the book of Hebrews, as he's warning them repeatedly, he reminds them that they have loved the saints, that they've shown their love for God in the service of the saints, and God is not unjust. He will not overlook that. But he, and he even says, as you still do, that they were still actively loving the saints, that they were directed at loving one another, and yet he tells them at the end of the letter, let brotherly love continue. The Greek word is Philadelphia. It's where the word Philadelphia comes from, the city of brotherly love. Here, the the brothers are referred to as those in the body of Christ. I don't think we should take this more broadly than that. He's speaking of brotherly love here and the, the family of God. There's a sense in which in our culture, in our world at least, 
people think that blood is somehow thicker than the spiritual bond that binds believers together. And often you'll see this in churches. All kinds of problems have existed in churches throughout the centuries because people choose their families over the people of God. They, they just go along with their families even though they know they shouldn't because they choose their family over the people of God. I was reminded this week as I was reading in my own Bible reading in Luke chapter 8, just reading along, I wasn't thinking about my sermon, I was just reading the Bible, but this passage jumped out at me because Jesus is preaching and teaching as he's often doing and he's healing masses of people and this crowd is preventing his family from getting into the house and talking with Jesus. And so the messengers kind of make their way to Jesus and they pass forward this message and finally someone at the front of the crowd says, Jesus, your mother and brothers are out the door and they want to talk to you. Jesus says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And I don't think he's rejecting his earthly family. I don't think he's denying his earthly family, but he is elevating above earthly families the family of God, those who are bound together by their mutual belief in the words of God. Earthly families are here for now and gone sometimes forever. But the family of God goes on forever and ever. So let us continue in brotherly love. They have been loving each other. There's already examples that we'll look at again in chapter 10 of how they've loved one another in the past. But the author reminds them to keep doing it. Why? Because in our natural state, we're prone to love ourself rather than the people around us. But I think what he's doing here is he's giving us three virtues, at least in this passage, there'll be more to come in the following weeks, three virtues that help us to qualify and define what is acceptable worship. And here he leads off with the first, love. Love one another. This shouldn't surprise us. It's found in every book of the Bible, it seems like, especially the New Testament. Jesus said repeatedly, a new commandment I give to you, that you must love one another. The command is repeated over and over in various ways throughout the New Testament. In fact, it was Jesus who said in John chapter 13, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I imagine Jesus giving a quiz to kind of the, the generic Christian community in the West. And apart from the fact that Jesus is giving a quiz and people might be freaked out by that, uh, the, the scene in my head went like this. That Jesus is there like a teacher handing out a pop quiz to these students. And on the quiz, there is this question. How do people know that you are a Christian? And all kinds of answers come back to him. Answers like, well, I, I wear Christian t-shirts, or I have a, a, a cross tattooed on my body, or I have a, a necklace with a cross on it, or someone might say, I have a Jesus fish on my car. Others might say, well, I tell them, I tell them that I'm a Christian. Or others might say, well, I, I bow my head and, and kind of sit there awkwardly before a meal at a restaurant by myself, and so they must know that I'm a Christian. But Jesus, proctoring this exam, giving this quiz, doesn't receive the answer that he actually gave the class earlier. This is how you will know, or this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. 
if you have love for one another. The love that he's speaking of is not just a warm feeling because the world doesn't see warm feelings. The world will see, will notice, will will see the actual demonstration of love through their acts of obedience and through their service to one another. In a sense, we could say that biblical love is a commitment to one another, that you are committed to one another, that you are committed through the thick and thin, through the difficult times and through the blessings, that you are committed ultimately to Christ and so therefore to his family. But love is practical. In our culture, people want to define love by how it makes them feel warm and happy and good. And so they love for a moment and then that love changes into something else. They like the feelings of love. They like the, the, the off-putting smell of love. But the Bible speaks of love as an action and he gives us here two examples that we'll look at to define what is brotherly love. What does it look like to love your brothers in Christ? Verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Again, I I, I don't think he's talking about just every random stranger in the world, although you could say that. But how he leads off is let brotherly love continue. He's defining this group that he's talking about, that there are the, the family of God, the brothers and the sisters who belong to Christ. And then he says immediately following, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Maybe you've been in a situation at a, a, you know, a picnic or some sort of family gathering or some sort of uh, company gathering and whatever it is, you're there talking with someone who you've just met and it doesn't take very long into the conversation to realize they're a brother or sister in Christ. Your conversation just naturally flows into this and immediately you both have the same understanding that you're my brother and you're my sister in Christ. In a sense, there are no strangers in the family of God. As soon as we identify that someone belongs to Christ, our hearts well up within us with joy and with love for them. You belong to the same God that I belong to. You have received the same spiritual blessings and you have the same spiritual hope that I have. In the ancient world, it was uh, not uncommon for people to have to travel much like it is in our own day, although the travel was quite different. They didn't have motorized vehicles or planes or any of those things, trains. They went by animal or they went by foot. But they had to travel a lot of times because their, their goods or their crops or whatever it was that they needed to sell, they would have to take to other places to sell those goods. Or they would go and buy things and bring them back and sell those things where they lived. But at any rate, there was reasons for people to travel. So travel was somewhat common, but it was dangerous. And so people were left with very few options. Obviously, they could just sleep out in the open. Uh, They could sleep along the trade routes. They could sleep alongside towns or cities, but that left them very susceptible and vulnerable to robbers and thieves, who you can read about in the Bible. 
And so often they would go into these city centers and there were two options, essentially. You had inns, these businesses that people ran, but they were often uh, gross. Uh, There's even ancient writings about, uh, they didn't call them bed bugs, but we would call them bed bugs or fleas and all kinds of other insects and things that were uh, infested in the buildings. They were nasty in, in that regard, but they were also unsafe. Robbers and thieves got in there as well, and they were expensive. So that was one option, find yourself an inn and hopefully make it through the night. The other option, and what was probably more common even than an inn, was that you would make an acquaintance, and that acquaintance, out of kindness, would invite you over to their home. They would offer hospitality, knowing that you're on a journey and that you're going to be going your way, but you needed a place to stay, they would offer you a place to stay. They would feed you. They would take care of you. And this is what the author is referring to, not to neglect to show hospitality. It kept the the traveler safe to be in a home where people would be watching out for them. It gave them a warm belly and, and kept them clean at night. But you've got to ask yourself the question, why does the author have to say to them, do not neglect to show hospitality? Because they were tempted to neglect to show hospitality. Naturally, if this just came natural to everyone, if this was just a common thing that everyone did, then the author wouldn't have to remind them to show hospitality. But like you and I, they also had sinful natures, and those sinful natures, like you and I, caused them to maybe think about not getting to know strangers because it was easier to just go home and do your thing, you know, flip on the TV and just relax and not have to entertain people. It was safer. The act of love and showing hospitality to strangers opens you up to potential risk. What if this person is a swindler? What if this person is trying to take advantage of me? And with that, I would say this, that these commands, this command, with all the commands of Scripture, they balance each other out. Yes, we're supposed to show hospitality, but at the same time, Jesus, when he was sending out his disciples to do ministry in Matthew 10 said, be, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, and so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Maintain that childlike faith, that innocence of heart that you have right now in serving Christ, but also be shrewd. Don't be naive. Don't be stupid or foolish. There are wolves who seek to steal, kill, and destroy just like their father, the devil, And we need to be aware of their schemes and we need to be aware of their plots. But as I have noticed in my own life, something creeps into our heart when we've been taken advantage of once or twice or 15 times. We start to harden ourselves to the needs of others. I remember a specific time I used to be a truck driver here in Portland and driving around every day and and I came, I was getting on the highway, and, and there was a, a homeless person there, at least that's how he appeared. And he had a sign that said, need help, or something like that. 
And what I could see from my raised up vantage point in a semi truck was this, that people were handing him bags of food, like a McDonald's bag or whatever, and he would kindly thank them. And then as they drove away, he would turn and drop it over the concrete barrier. And as I got closer, I was able to peer over the concrete barrier and there was a mound of food bags. This person wasn't in need of help. This person wanted money or something that he could turn probably directly into drugs to continue the lifestyle that he had chosen. And when you've seen that enough times and when you've been taken advantage of enough times, you start to harden yourself off to the needs of the people that present themselves to you, right? You've been there. You've been in similar situations. And what we need to remind ourselves of is this. We need to maintain a gentle spirit. We need to maintain that childlike faith. We need to not close ourselves off to the needs of people just because we've been taken advantage of a time or two. But we also need to be wise. Specifically, we need to show hospitality. In our day and age, you know, people travel and they can get a hotel. They can be in a safe place. They can, you know, safely get to where they need to go. But it doesn't mean that this verse gets just removed from the Bible, that this doesn't no longer apply to us. What I think we need to think about is, is something I read in a commentary this week. Just pricked my heart as soon as I read the words. The commentator asked a question in regards to this verse and said, how many of our congregants or how many of the people that we go to church with could describe to you the inside of your home? And it's a simple question, and yet the, the question itself demands a response. How many people that you call brothers and sisters in Christ, how many of those people can actually define to you, describe to you what the inside of your house looks like? I was immediately convicted, and I thought, oh man, there are people in our church who have never been in my home. If we are called to be the family of God, we cannot live as strangers among each other, coming to receive and then going away, coming receive, going away, never getting to know the people that we're called to do life with. So show hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality. And some might immediately protest, and I've heard people say, well, well pastor, that's really not my gift. That's not how God wired me or made me or I'm not very good at it and you'll notice in your Bible just as it isn't in my Bible that there are no caveats that the author doesn't say do not neglect to show hospitality unless you're not good at it he doesn't say do not neglect to show hospitality unless that's not your gift in that case neglect it it's a demand for all of us that at whatever level we can that we seek to show hospitality, that, that the strangers among us would start to feel like family. The author tacks on here an interesting statement. He says, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I don't think the author is trying to motivate us to show hospitality so that we might entertain an angel. 
the people next to you might be really friendly, but certainly they're not angels, right? Right? Okay, good. You guys are freaking me out. More charismatic than I thought. No, that's not what the author, I don't think, is saying. He's not trying to motivate us to, to show hospitality so that we can maybe entertain an angel. I think what he's doing is he's writing to a Jewish audience who were very familiar with their Hebrew Bibles, and they were very familiar with specific instances in the Old Testament where angels were entertained, people thought they were men. Specifically, Abraham and Lot are the two examples I'm thinking of. There's probably more. But Abraham is there at his tents, and he's enjoying the heat of the day, just there resting probably, and he sees three men approaching, what appear to be men. They weren't. And Abraham goes out to meet them, and he begs them. He he basically says, if I have found favor with you, please come into my home. Let me cook you a meal and refresh your soul before you continue on on your journey. Abraham begged these men to be able to show them hospitality. He wanted to refresh them so they could continue on their way. It was, in Abraham's mind, a blessing to be able to serve them. What did he lose in response? He lost a young goat. He lost several hours of his time. His wife had to stop what she was doing to prepare the goat. Uh, Everything stopped and ceased in Abraham's tent so that these men could be provided for. And in the end of the story, we find out it was actually the Lord of heaven, pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of Yahweh, plus two other messengers. And then in the next chapter, I believe, it's chapter 19, Genesis 19, two what appear to be men come into Sodom and Gomorrah. And... They went to the town square because they were seeking lodging. And they go to the town square, and thankfully, before nightfall, Lot finds them and says, please come into my home. Don't stay out here. It's not safe out here. And he knew what he was talking about. And the two men come into Lot's home, and they're almost molested. They're almost abused to death. Not that they would have been as angels. But Lot is spared, and his daughters as well. His wife had the opportunity, but failed. All because he was willing to show hospitality. What he's saying is this. In those extreme cases, it led to their salvation. He's motivating them of the importance of showing hospitality. And so we must show hospitality. It's actually one of the requirements, one of the characteristics of an elder, that he's hospitable. Verse 3, showing hospitality is the first tangible demonstration of love because he's defining love for us. Verse 3, he gives us a second tangible expression of love. Remember those who are in prison. He's not talking about just your typical criminal, although it's not wrong to remember criminals that are in prison. There's, there's wonderful ministries that happen in prisons because Christians go there and minister to people. But specifically, he's talking about the Christian community, the brotherly love that he's calling them to continue in. And specifically, we can read about this back in chapter 10, Verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, 
sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. He's talking about a day and age in their, in their past when they were persecuted and some people were even thrown in prison. And prisoners in the first century weren't treated with the same dignity that prisoners in our uh, 21st century culture are treated. They didn't have rights. They were prisoners. They were, they were below even citizens. And so oftentimes, prisons were horrible places to be. Paul is writing sometimes from prison. He says things like to Timothy, bring my cloak, bring the parchments. It's, it's getting close to winter and Paul needs an extra cloak. He needs basically a blanket to stay warm at night because the prison didn't provide that. Prisoners needed food. The prison might provide some food just to keep the prisoner alive, but for the most part, they would languish away in prison because they weren't properly cared for. And so friends and family and others had to come and, and offer compassion, sympathy, and concern. And so that's what the author is saying here. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. It's the idea of sympathy. It's what Jesus taught his disciples. Whatever you would have others do to you, so do to them. That you recognize that, that if you were in prison, you would want people to come visit you. You would want people to care for you. You would want people to not just forget about you there. You die alone in a prison cell for trying to honor and obey Christ. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated. The other part of the list that we already read, those who had their property confiscated, they were mistreated, they were spoken ill of, they lost their jobs in some cases, they lost their homes, many of their families rejected them. And he says, remember these people. Come alongside of them offer sympathy and support, carry their burden as a true demonstration of your love for them. Don't let them suffer alone since you also are in the body. I think what he's saying there is just simply this, that you are in your body still, that you know what it means to be mistreated, that you know what it means or what it would be like to be in prison. You know how difficult going through those things might be, and so remember how difficult it would be for you, and therefore seek to ease their burden in any way that you can. So the first qualif qualifying virtue of acceptable worship is love, but the author keeps going. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. Everyone knew what marriage was. Even if none of them actually lived it out, they at least knew what it was. It was a, a, a phenomenon across the known world, across all of the world. Marriage is what it is. It's the institution that God designed from the beginning. It wasn't man's idea. Adam didn't say, you know what, I'm lonely. Look, the giraffes have each other. The hippos have each other. I've got no one. No, Adam was doing his job. He was naming the animals. He was doing exactly what God told him to do. And it was God who said it's not good for the man to be alone. 
So he puts Adam to sleep, and Adam wakes up at his own wedding. He's there at the altar, and God is presenting his bride to him. And he says, thanks? This is great? Didn't even think about this. What a great idea. This is the, uh, the first marriage, and it was God's idea, and it's still God's idea. All that man has added to marriage is perversion and corruption. What God has given to us as humanity is perfect, it's right, it's good, it's acceptable. And all that we have done is messed it up. In our culture, much like in their own culture, marriage was, was perverted, it was corrupt, it was anything but what it should have been. And as these people are being saved and coming out of even Judaism with acceptable practices that weren't honoring to God, the author calls them to, to a place of holiness. Throughout the book, we've been talking about Jesus and how he is superior and how his sacrifice is superior because he makes us holy. He brings us into God's presence. He perfects the worshiper for all time. And so now practically, he's saying, this is what it looks like in your marriage. That marriage is to be honored above all and among all. If you were to just go out into our culture, pick a random place and poll the first hundred people you see and say, is marriage an honorable institution? Probably over half of the responses would say no. We have been trained to think in our culture that marriage is a form of bondage. That marriage entraps you and keeps you from really enjoying life as you would want to enjoy it. What's ironic about that is it's somewhat true. Because you and I were called to selflessness. You and I were called to take up our cross and to die to ourselves and to serve others and to love God above ourselves. And marriage is the perfect institution to help us learn that. Because in marriage, you say, I'm not going to love myself anymore. I'm going to love that person now. And every day, you have opportunity to live that out. Those who are still committed to their own sinful desires will find marriage to be stifling and horrible. But if your desire is to honor God and your desire is to walk in the holiness that he has called you to, then you will find in marriage the perfect institution to crush your selfishness. We're to honor marriage. As Jesus did when he was alive, he was asked a question about marriage and about divorce. And he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man break apart. We live in a day and age in which divorce is easier than marriage. It's actually easier to get divorced than it is to get married. But that shouldn't be the case. Let marriage be held in honor among all, at least among Christians. It is despicable that the Christian community has embraced and gone along with the world's conception of marriage. 
as the world perverts it and distorts it and twists it, the church comes along and affirms that and says, yep, that's right, that's where we're going too. But we who believe the Bible must hold fast to what the Bible says about marriage and we must hold it in high honor. It is God's idea and it is for our good. But the author goes on, still talking about marriage, he goes right to the heart of marriage and says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. The marriage bed, a euphemism for sexual intercourse, for intimacy in marriage, the only place that God ever designed intimacy to be a thing. It's good in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Everywhere else, it's bad. It's destructive. It's corrupted. And the author says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let me just say this, church. There is absolutely nothing that you can learn from the world when it comes to how to have a right relation with your spouse. Maybe you think that's overstated. Let me just say it again so you hear me correctly. There is nothing you can learn from the world about how to have proper relations with your spouse that you shouldn't already know from the Bible. What the world offers is forms of corruption and perversion and ultimately a self-satisfying approach. Because as I said at the beginning, the, the goal of our life, the aim for our entire life as Christians is to present to God acceptable worship. How we do that is we die to ourself. That's what Jesus called us to, to take up our cross and to die to ourself. And then he gives us marriage as a way to practically help you do that. And then we turn to the world as if the world is going to help us Know how to be married better? Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Why? For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Well, that was back then. This is the new covenant. The new covenant that you and I are still under. The new covenant where God is still a consuming fire, where he does not overlook sin, where he does not just passively brush it under the rug because now he's loving all of a sudden. God will not put up with sexual immorality and adultery. You can read in Revelation, after everything is done, there is a, a, a verse in there that says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Their place will be in the lake of fire. The word sexual immoral, immoral or sexual immorality comes from a Greek word, pornea. That probably sounds familiar to you because in our English language, we have the word pornography, which is literally the Greek word pornea and graphe, pornographe. It's sexual morality in the form of writing or in the form of pictures. And yet our culture runs rampant after it. Our culture is eating it up. It's everywhere. It's even in children's things. Because the enemy who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy has infiltrated cultures, has infiltrated our culture to dissect and to uh, disintegrate the things that God made good. 
The world around us says that if you want to have a, a happy and fulfilled sexual life, don't get married. They ignore the studies that say that actually the most satisfied people are those who are committed in marriage, Christians. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let me say this plainly. There is absolutely no reason, there is absolutely no place for pornography in any of our lives. And as I say that, I know this, that some of you struggle with that. I would just see, I would tell you this, seek help. Don't live in secret thinking that you'll somehow figure out how to overcome it when you haven't overcome it for all these years. Humble yourself. Confess your sins one to another and be healed, as James says. Find help among the brothers. Let your brothers and your sisters hold you up and carry you and uh, lift you up in the midst of your burden. But do not let sexual immorality lead you to a place of hell and torment. Do not let it destroy your life and your marriage. Young people, I don't know how to say this more bluntly or more clearly. This, more than anything else maybe, in all of your life will destroy you. It promises you satisfaction, it promises you pleasure, it promises you all that your hearts desire, and what it gives you in the end is destruction, brokenness. Turn to the Lord, turn your eyes on Christ, reject the things that the world tells you, and listen to what the Bible says. Find help from those who can help you. We're called to live pure. If we are to present acceptable worship to God, it will come in the form of love for the brothers and purity in marriage. If you're not married, don't think that this point doesn't apply to you. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all, even the single people. Paul was single. Jesus was single. Many other uh, well-known Bible figures were single Many men and women throughout church history were single and yet used mightily by God. What singleness does is it either causes you to be extremely selfish or extremely devoted to Christ. You'll either be devoted to yourself and your own self-interests or you'll be devoted to Christ and you'll have tons of energy and time to serve him. But for the vast majority of us, God has called us to be married, and we need to embrace it as a form of God's help in crucifying our flesh. Marriage is hard, I know, get over it. Thank God that it doesn't just give you an easy, simple marriage that you never have to learn anything. Verse five brings us to a third quality of acceptable worship a virtue that we need to all hold near and dear, the form of contentment. Acceptable worship in the form of contentment. 
a word we don't hear often in our culture because our culture is driven to make us want more and more and more. Advertising drives everything you see on the internet, drives everything you see on TV. It drives everything you hear typically on the radio through other means of uh, communication. Make them want what they don't realize they want. Keep your life, he says, free from love of money. Why money? Money is a neutral thing. It's not bad or good. It's neutral. In fact, it's just paper. But money represents everything that you want. How do you get what you want? Well, you work hard, you, you then get the money, and then you go purchase it. And so people, without even realizing it, all of a sudden their, their life is steered towards loving money and wanting more and more and more. Because getting money helps them get what they ultimately want. And maybe that's just a lot of money for security reasons. Keep your life free from love of money. It is like a garden. Love of money will creep in like weeds in a garden. It happens naturally. It happens almost by osmosis. The culture around us loves money. It is one of the premier idols in our land. Whether you're rich and have a lot of money or whether you're poor and don't have any, people of all walks of life love money. And if we are not careful, that love of money will creep into our own life. And so he says, keep your life free from love of money. Pull those weeds up as soon as, they, as soon as you notice them. Get rid of them. And the counter to that, the, the negative or the, the defensive is keep your life free from the love of money. But the offensive is be content with what you have. Love of money represents all the things that you want. Contentment represents all the things that you need, which are the things you have. Paul says to Timothy, if we have food and clothing, that'll be enough. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. In that same passage, he says, the root of, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It was Jesus who said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus never lived in our day, though. He didn't know how hard it would be to try and pay a mortgage, try and do all the things that we have to do. Oh, I think he knew. I think he knew how hard it was for them in that day and how hard it is for us in our day. The devil will tempt you by, in two ways. He will either give you not enough money or keep you from having enough money or feeling like you don't have enough money so that you long for more of it or he'll give you too much or he'll allow you to have more than you actually need so that you just sit around and think about it all the time. We need to find the way to be content. And the author gives us the way. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Why do people love money? Because it represents all the things that they want and they feel like they need. It represents protection and security. But for those of us who know Christ, for those of us who have brought, been brought into the presence of God, who have been renewed in the blood of Jesus, we have these sacred promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We think we need more money for tomorrow, but guess what? Tomorrow's going to come, and guess what's going to protect you? It'll be God, not your money. If tomorrow comes and all the money is removed, we will still rejoice because God alone is here for us. The author goes on to say, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's one of those verses that you should just tattoo on your forehead. Not really. Don't really do that. That would be weird. But you should probably write it on a three-by-five card and stick it on your mirror. So when you're brushing your teeth, which you should also do every day, when you're brushing your teeth, you see this verse and you're reminded in your, your own heart and mind every morning, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Today, when I leave the safety of my home and the comfort of my home and I go out into the world to experience all that the world has for me, the Lord is my helper. He will not leave me nor forsake me. I have nothing to fear today. This is how we learn to be content. And Paul said it may be the best when he says in Philippians chapter 4, by the way, he's writing from a prison cell. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need i can do all things through him who strengthens me that's the context of that famous verse that whether you have a little or whether you have a lot that either way god is with you and you can do all things through him who strengthens you i hope you believe that church and i hope you stop believing the lie that the world tells us every day that you need more We need to be content. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire to worship you. We recognize, Lord, even that desire comes from you. You've given us a new heart by the new covenant. You've written your laws in our heart. You've called us to be worshipers of you, Lord, and you've given us a new heart that is able to do that. But we want to present acceptable worship acceptable in your sight, not our own. Help us, Lord, to live out not just the songs that we sing, but these very words on Scripture. Help us, Lord, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, to be committed through life's difficulties and through all the blessings. May we be committed to one another as the family of God. And may you help us, Lord, to honor marriage, to hold it in high regard, to hold it in a pure form in our own minds as well as a congregation pray that you would guard the marriages of this church and protect us against the the onslaught of the world that we live in pray for our young people 
You would help their minds to be pure, to not be infected by the things of this world that want to corrupt them and turn their hearts away from you. And God, the same goes with love of money. This dominant idol that is invisible and yet so prevalent in our culture. Help us to be a people that worship and serve you only. In Jesus' name, amen. I would invite you to stand as we close. I will again read the benediction at the end of Hebrews. In a few weeks, we'll break it down line by line, but let's just read it, hear it again. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Yours.